Mr. Biden, Mountain Sand, and a line. Leonard, Bernstein, Leonard, Brass, Nap, Lenny, Bush, and Lester Banks. Birthday party, cheesecake, jelly bean, boom. You symbiotic, patriotic, slam, but next. Good evening, it's episode 8 of the Crash and Burn Movie Podcast. Uh, I'm Jim Cogan. I'm John Wisby. And we are contemplating... The end of the world. Doomsday. The, the apocalypse. The end of days. A bit of a hint about uh, this episode's theme selection. It's coming up to the end of 2012. Mayan calendar says we're all done for. However, to celebrate possibly the end of the world... We have a theme selection of end of the world scenarios for you to enjoy. That's this episode of the Crash and Burn Movie Podcast. We're back, did it's episode eight. Yep. Um, we've got suitably post-apocalyptic weather this evening. I was slightly drenched on the way down here to come to record this. It's chucking it down, so apologies if you can hear drizzle in the background. It's pouring down here in Bristol. And um, about 20 miles away in Cheddar Gold, the road has been ripped up by flood water. That may actually have happened. Yeah, it has had yet. It was on the news <laughs> earlier. Fair enough. Anyway, uh, as we said earlier, this is the uh, end, last uh, episode for, uh, for the current year, 2012, uh, and we will be doing a theme selection all about end-of-the-world scenarios. But first, Mr. Wisby, what have you been watching? Oh, what I've been watching is, well, first of all, on recommendation from you last week, I got hold of a copy of Cockneys vs. Zombies. Yeah, <laughs> And, um... Yeah, I watched it, and for two hours, I was nearly laying in a pool of my own urine. I found it that funny. Sounds like a typical Saturday night for you, doesn't it? Yeah, but um, great film, as you said. My favourite sequence was the uh, West Ham zombies fighting the Millwall zombies. The football fan zombies, that's very yeah. good. And the uh, copious shots of Michelle Ryan's low-cut top with a rather ample cleavage. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what else have you watched? And the other thing I watched was... Uh, um, I watched Twister, Twister, just for the hell of it. Twister, the, oh. Yeah, uh, what's his name, as a sto- uh, Dennis Quaid as a storm chaser. Oh dear. It's not a bad film, it's... I, yeah. I am allergic to storm chasers, I just, there are so many um, documentaries about storm chasers on things like Discovery, mm. and um, I, I swear, there's no scientific reason for doing all this storm chasing, it's just so they can get their dodgy footage on shows about people who chase storms on Discovery. That's Yeah. That seems to be the only reason for that. And, but, um, uh, but there again, there is a certain thing about storm. You know, I don't go... In Britain, we do get more tornadoes than the States do, but they tend to be a lot smaller. Well, yeah. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we do get a lot of nice thunderstorms. And I've got to admit, one of my finest memories of nature was standing on a clifftop in Cornwall. In the uh, Fortunately, it was an onshore wind. Not an offshore, not a wind blowing offshore. Stayed on top of a cliff top in a false nine gale, 
watching a storm rolling in off the Atlantic with waves breaking 200 foot up cliffs. That is a moment that stays with you for the rest of your life if you've ever experienced things like that. There you that. go. I've Powerful watched Twister stuff. once and I've forgotten what it was like already. It's not bad. It's, it's okay. okay. It's better than Dante's Peak and the and Volcano and the other kind of natural disaster movies that came out about that sort. That I would probably uh, concur with. Yeah. yeah. So, that's what you've been watching? That's what I've been watching. You haven't been watching much, have you? Ridiculously, I have been watching nothing. I've had no time. Um, Obviously, I've I've watched a couple of films uh, in prep for this podcast. But being that I... I don't know when this will actually go out on the air, but it's only a week after we recorded the previous. Uh, yeah, we're trying to get a couple because we're doing we're various cramming. things. We're trying to make Christmas. up for our poor performance in the preceding month. Yeah, and because so we're, we're both pretty busy over Christmas New Year period, we we're getting a couple are. ahead of ourselves. We're working, trying to do we? a buffer. So uh, between last week and now, other than the uh, the research stuff that I'm you know I'm supposed to have watched for this podcast, I've not had a chance to watch anything. So. Yeah, I haven't been watching nothing. Nothing. So on that, we're going to move on to coming soon. Now, I haven't been... Oh, I had a look and there was nothing took my fucking fancy at all. Apart from the uh, fall, the fall of the Essex Boys, tying in with the Essex Boys did last week, I couldn't really find that much information out about it. Not that I did put anything down, but it looks interesting. I've got a couple of interesting ones. First yeah, off... A couple of interesting ones. A couple of interesting ones. Um, there's a biopic called Helena. Um, it was actually completed in 2011. I believe it's getting a limited theatrical release right now. It's directed by Jose Henrique Fonseca, um, South American filmmaker, directed a South American highly lauded action film called Man of the Year. Um, stars Rodrigo Santoro, who starred in 300, Rio and Che Part 2. Um, and it's a biopic of one of Brazil's most lauded footballing legends from the immediate post-war era, Helano de Freitas. Um, it's shot in black and white and beautifully depicts uh, Rio in the 1940s. Uh, this film follows the tragic life of the footballer from his fanatical love of his home club through to his international breakthrough and ultimately his admission to a sanatorium, his untimely death at the age of just 39. Um not heard of this bloke obviously post-war immediately post-war football is not really my era um it sounds like a 1940s brazilian gazer if you ask me I, he was a striker apparently he was a, a big old-fashioned center forward so he scored most of his goals of which he in his first i was looking at the stats apparently he scored 200 goals in something like 260 appearances for his, his debut club um most of which were scored with his head so uh in the days of you know, lace-up footballs that would give you brain damage. That's no mean thing. No wonder you end up in the sun at all. Absolutely, it drove him mental. I'm told it's quite a tragic uh, story, and he, you know, there's quite a, a dramatic fall from grace towards the end of his career. Um, so it ends on a bit of a sad note. But it's supposed to be, it's supposed to look beautiful. Um, it's been shot in black and white. I think to match in with the sort of footage of him playing in black and white. So it's all kind of meant to sort of be of the era. Um, there's not a huge write-up of it on, on online. Um, I came across this on um, an, like an independent film website. And I had a look on Internet Movie Database as well. Um, a few people from South America have commented on it, and they're mixed, but most people agree it looks fantastic. Um, some people say it goes a bit too far into his private life and some things are best left. But uh, um, as far as an interesting biopic goes, um, a bit of interest in football myself, and it's a legendary Brazilian team from You've a, got an era. football. 
I have indeed. It's Bristol City fan, that bad computer. I, I know, I, I kind of cover that up. But yeah. <laughs> I've got an interest in football, but it's a, it's a juxtaposition on my part, an oxymoronic juxtaposition. Mm. I'm interested in football, but I do support Bristol City. Mm. There we go. Um, moving swiftly on from all things football before we start talking about Bristol City um, my second choice for coming soon is Django Unchained. Have you heard of this? The new Tarantino. The new Tarantino. It's Tarantino's long-awaited attempt at a Western, starring Jamie Foxx, Don Johnson, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, with the help of his mentor, a slave-turned-bounty hunter sets out to rescue his wife from a brutal Mississippi plantation owner. Um, been waiting for Tarantino to do an interesting film. I haven't seen Inglorious mm. Bastards, but I'm told that takes... A lot of liberty with history. Yeah, but then it's um, supposed to be a parody of these old sixties gung ho American war movies, isn't it? So the word on the street is it's a return to form for Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Don't know. I'm hoping for the best. Now this is a sequel, isn't it? So the original Django, the or sort of sequel, homage to the original Django, which is nineteen sixties, Sam Peckinpah or something like I that. I haven't seen it. I've not ah, seen right. it, so I don't know whether it's going to be a direct sequel or not. Have you seen it? The original Django, yeah, a long time back. Yeah. I might have to dig a bit deeper, but just the fact that it's got Tarantino spin on it, um, I'm I'm interested <clears throat> in seeing it. So that's my choice there, Django Unchained, which is coming up soon. Excellent. Look forward to that. Well, well we've ripped through the, uh, the first bit of the show. Uh, people say we're getting slicker, but I think it's just we're getting less content. <laughs> yeah, but don't worry, we're going to make up for it. This, uh, we're going to make up for it. We're going we're to discuss we're gonna the end of the world. Broadcast like it's death. the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be back after these messages. It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. We're sick to manage it. You'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I could handle anything. Action. Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. (laughs) And romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back for just one more adventure. Humans are such an easy prey. Noel Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit! The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Miller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures in VHS or visit adventuresinvhs.com. Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. 
1984. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth Podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. And we're back. We're back in the room, people. Once again. The end of the world. Oh, my God. Now, um, the end of the world is something that's been portrayed no end of times in cinema and probably continue to do so, providing the world doesn't actually end. Yeah, I can't uh, continue this podcast. Can you not? No, because I suddenly because, because the end of the world's coming up, I suddenly become a born-again Christian and movies are evil. Oh, dear. Yeah. But there again, what if the, what if the atheists are right? Oh, sort it doesn't happen, doesn't exist. Yeah, hedging me bets here, Pete. There you go. Yeah. I'm going to take an agnostic view, and I I don't know either. Way. If it happens, it happens. Yeah, yeah. whatever. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> what would you say? What do we a, want? A disinterested. Agnostic. What do we want? Apathy. When do we want it? Yeah, whenever. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. So we're going to start with the theme selection. Um, here's my first choice. Okay, Hit that trailer. War is too important to be left to politicians. Oh, hell. Mr. President, about 35 minutes ago, General Jack Ripper, the commanding general of um, Burleson Air Force Base, issued an order for the planes to uh, attack their targets inside Russia. The aircraft began penetrating Russian radar cover within uh, 25 minutes. I want to speak to General Ripper on the telephone personally. General Ripper uh, sealed off the base and cut off all communication. Any force trying to enter would certainly encounter very heavy casualties. Staines, get Premier Kissoff on the hotline. Premier Kissoff is a degenerate atheist. Mr. President, I formally request that you have a signal Mr. President, I think they're trying the number. One of our base commanders, he ordered his plane to attack your country. Check bomb door circuits one through four. They will not reach their targets for at least another hour. We're just going to have to help you destroy them. The fools, the mad fools, the doomsday machine, a device which will destroy all human and animal life on Earth. Is the Premier threatening to explode this if our planes carry out their attack? No, sir. It is not a thing a sane man would do. The doomsday machine is designed to trigger itself automatically. Automatically? Ah, it's an obvious common trick, Mr. President. We're wasting valuable time. What are they for? We're getting ready to clobber. Dr. Strangelove. Mr. President, the technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires only the will to do so. Guys, you're not getting to get out of the boy. You're more close to warm-up things for it. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is a war room. General Rippers, huh? As an officer in Her Majesty's Air Force, it is my clear duty to issue the recall code and bring back the wing. You can't excuse me, huh? He says that one of the planes hasn't turned back. He says according to information forwarded by our air staff, it's headed for the missile complex at Laputa. Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, 1964, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Have we featured a previous Kubrick film? Is this first? I can't believe that we've not featured. We a touched on them briefly 
because uh, you mentioned Malcolm McDowell in a few episodes. But I don't think we've actually, Orange, but we haven't done we a Kubrick. Have not picked a Kubrick film, so yeah. this seems like a very great place to start with a Kubrick uh, film. with a Kubrick film. Um, obviously, to the uninitiated and those living under a rock, and probably those that do deserve to uh, have the end of the world land on them, if you've not heard of any previous Stanley Kubrick efforts, there's Clockwork Orange, 2001: A Space Odyssey, Full Metal Jacket, The Shining, and shed loads of other ones that you probably should have seen. Yep. Um, but if you haven't seen any of those, then really that's what you need to spend whatever time we have left on Earth watching. I think. Although, don't bother too much with Eyes Wide Shut. It's not no, that good. no, until that was over. Mm. You actually seen Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah. Oh, well, there we go. Everybody's allowed a yeah. bit of a stinker in their career. And Kubrick, unfortunately, was his last one. But that is very sad. But uh, now we're going right the way back to 1964, Doctor Strange Love, uh, starring the late Peter Sellers and uh, George C. Scott died recently, didn't mm-hmm. he? Uh, the late George C. Scott as well. I'll give you the, a brief rundown of the plot for this one. There is a general who's gone a little bit loopy. Yep. Uh, he goes beyond his military clearance and launches uh, an attack on the Russians. Despite Peter Sellers' best effort to stop him. Or one of the Peter Sellers. One of the Peter Sellers. It's worth noting that Peter Sellers plays three different parts. He was originally contracted to play uh, four parts, hmm. but uh, in the end they got it down to three. Um Absolutely. So there are some, I think they're B-52s, are they not? On the B-52s, way to, they are. They are going on the way to Russia, all loaded up with nuclear bombs. Peter Sellers also plays the president of the US who finds this crisis unfolding in front of him. It turns out that if one of these bombs hits Russia, Russia has gone ahead and designed this doomsday device that in the event of being attacked will detonate lots and lots of other devices and bring upon the end of the world in nuclear Armageddon. Yep. Um... That's essentially it, really, isn't it? When you, when you Peter Sellers down. also plays Peter the Peter Sellers German... plays the, the titular character yeah. of Doctor Strangelove. The main concept of the film, the sort of first half of the film, is what's going on with this attack? How can we stop it? How can we call the bombers back? And then it kind of changes subtly, sort of halfway through, where they, they manage to recall the majority of the bombers, but there's one... Um, that for whatever technical reason cannot be recalled. I think the radio is damaged. It, I think it's, the aircraft it's, the, the it's a device site. that the, the, the return code is broadcast on. Yeah. damaged. So as far as they're concerned, this is the end of it. Um, so halfway through the the, the, the shape, the sort of um, the emphasis of the film changes on how can we preserve the human race and our political advantages and everything else. And I don't know. I, I, it's a statement, obviously, about the. Uh, you know, politics and politicians and misguided priorities and, you know, what's at stake and everything. Mm. Um, and the kind of hypocrisy of it all. Um, it's It's been a while since I've seen this one, but I've seen it four or five times. Uh, it's a comedy, but it's an incredibly black comedy. Maybe it gets blacker and blacker as it gets to the end, you know? But somehow it gets funnier as well, doesn't yeah. it, at the same time? Especially um, the iconic final sequence, which I'm not going to describe. We can't talk about the final sequence, although there will be a, a bit of a clue about that right at the end of the show. We've decided to add a yeah. bit of a musical clue to it. Um, it's worth noting that uh, Peter Sellers seamlessly plays the three characters. Um, Dr. Strangelove himself is a former, I think he's a former Nazi yeah. professor. Uh, who comes up with all these very... Uh, keeps referring to uh, the president as Mein Fuhrer, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and the ladies, they must be ready to buy. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. This very ridiculous German accent. Um, he also plays an RAF, I think he's an RAF yeah. general, who's uh, frustrated. He's frustrated at every turn, just when he thinks he's come up with ways of saving the world or calling back the bomber or whatever. Um, essentially, the, the kind of US politics and hypocrisy stops him yeah. and, and sort of foils him at every turn. Um, and of course, he also plays the president, who is basically surrounded by idiots. And as you can see, why he's making these mistakes. To be honest, he's mm. got. Uh, if this is the kind of people you go to for advice, you're in trouble anyway. One of the people that he goes to advice, and for me, although I do like Peter Sellers, I think he's a fantastic actor, and the fact that he plays the three parts is phenomenal. George C. Scott steals the film mm. and every scene that he's in, um, playing. Somebody who's quite an unbalanced and egotistical general. Uh, it's worth noting, I looked up in the production notes for this, that uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick got wanted George C. Scott to play the character quite extreme and quite full-on. Um, but George C. Scott refused. And the only way he would get him to do it, well, there was two methods. Um, if there was a, a point of, of argument, they would often settle it over a game of chess. Um, and apparently Stanley Kubrick... <laughs> was a lethal chess player and beat him every time. Um, but there were some things that uh, George C. Scott just refused to do that were just too way out there. And uh, Kubrick got them to do them as test takes, claiming that they weren't either properly filming, they were just practising, and then used them in the final cut of the film. Um, George C. Scott refused quite point blank to ever work with Stanley Kubrick again. Um, but... As far as I'm concerned, it is the highlight of the film. His uh, outbursts. It's one of the highlights of George C. Scott's career, which is saying something. Most yeah? definitely, most definitely. Um, the film is littered with cultural significance and, and one line. I think my favourite one line there is the gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I think uh, uh, goes oh, down just in about history. to mention that as my favourite. That quote is from my, the film. one of my favourite quotes from cinema and comedy of all time. What do you think of Doctor Strangelove, Mister Wisby? No, iconic movie. It's like one of these, one of these ones that like we were talking about if last week. It's one of these ones that should be on school syllabuses that all kids should watch at some point before they leave, you know? It's interesting. I did watch this one. I, mean, I, I think I watched it when I was about 14. Mm. And in all fairness, I wasn't overly politically aware at the time. And I think a lot of it went straight over my head. And the Cold War had literally just kind of finished at the point when I mm. watched it. So I don't know what it would have been like watching this at the, you know, the kind of height of it. Mm. In the... Well, the first time I saw it was on telly in the late 70s at the height of the Cold War. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was quite, it was one of these things, it was like we went into school and everyone's talking about, did you see Doctor Strange last night? So it was a cultural event. Yeah, and we were only sort of like 13, 14 year olds. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's significant. But there again, like I said, we, I did grow up with literally the case of the clock at two minutes for midnight and we can get nuked at any minute, so. Most definitely, most definitely. I, I think uh, with a, the slightly older generation, it probably still, still holds out its significance. Um, I, I, I watched bits of it. I think with age, I found the kind of black comedy funnier, which I probably was a bit too subtle for me mm. when I was younger. So it, it's a kind of film that matures as you grow older and watch it again later, and you, you, you miss a lot of it. But the, the devil's in the detail with this film, although there is some action in it. Um, it's the, the subterfuge and the, uh, you know, the, some of the little one-liners. And just the way the atmosphere changes at the end to get darker and darker and darker. 
Most definitely. You like? Most definitely. Uh, a classic film. Potentially, it's, it's hard to... Um, I choose not to kind of sort of put Kubrick's films in any kind of order. I think there is a body of work that, yeah. that are all kind of a bit of a work of genius. Uh, but this is certainly right up there with them. So that was... Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Bomb, 1964. Okay. Over to you. My turn. Well, well we're going, we're time what or kind of effect-wise, we're carrying on from immediately where Doctor Strangelove ends, and we're going to play this. Now, I'm having trouble finding a trailer, so uh, in absence of a trailer, here's a clip from the movie that sums things up a bit. That's wishful thinking, if ever I heard it. I'm not against wishful thinking, not now. Look, they pushed us too far. They didn't think we'd fight no matter what they did. And they were wrong. We fought, we expunged them. We didn't do such a bad job on ourselves. With the interesting result that the background level of radiation in this very room is nine times what it was a year ago. Don't you know that? Nine times. We're all doomed, you know. The whole silly, drunken, pathetic lot of us. Doomed by the air we're about to breathe. We haven't got a chance. I won't have it, Julian. I won't. There is hope. There has to be hope. There's always hope. We just can't go on like this. We can't. We... I shouldn't drink, you know. I inevitably say something brilliant. Sorry. That was an excerpt from the classic 1959 post-apocalyptic tale On the Beach, a uh, Stanley Kramer-directed movie based on the classic Neville Shute novel. Um, Stanley Kramer, again, one of these um, iconic directors, a bit like... Maybe not as highly acclaimed as Kubrick, but uh, did things like High Moon, Judgment on Nuremberg. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Uh, quite a few other classic, you know, uh, classics of American cinema. Basically, it's 1964, and World War III has just ended, with um, most of the world blowing itself into tiny little pieces. Um, only in a few isolated pockets in the Southern Hemisphere are there any survivors one of which is Australia, which has escaped any direct nuclear attack. However, um, the uh, world's weather systems are slowly drawing the radiation cloud south. Radiation levels are building up all over Australia, and they reckon that they've got about a year tops before Australia becomes uninhabitable with fallout and radiation. Um, the various survivors are facing oblivion and uh, clinging on to any hope they can, they can have, they can find. Um, there's US, Australian, US and Australian uh, military bases that are constantly monitoring for radio signals, and one in Sydney picks up a, a kind of garbled Morse code message coming from somewhere out in the Pacific. Using another radio station, they managed to get a triangulation on it and find it's coming from San Diego. And uh, tied up in Sydney Harbour is the USS Sawfish, commanded by uh, one Captain Travis, played by Gregory Peck, who is um, sent out to sail over to San, over to California and investigate this garbled Morse code signal that keeps coming in and out every so often. 
And while they're there, the Australian scientists said, well, pop up to the Arctic and check the radiation levels, see if it's kind of... Because they're hoping that the Arctic ice will absorb the radiation kind of thing. Um, science may be a bit iffy, but this is a 1959 film, so... Uh, yeah. Um, ship sails off to investigate. Meanwhile, in Australia, um, uh, the state starts to dish out suicide pills can... So people have got the choice of ending it quickly rather than doing this long, slow, painful death of radiation poisoning. Um, the suicide rate then quadruples and people start euthanizing their children before it gets too late. It's a jolly little film. <laughs> oh, it, this, this is a fantastically bleak movie. Cuts back to the submarine that goes over and finds out that... I'm not, I'm not going to give a major plot point away. They find the source of the signal and... Um, it's very ironic, put it that way. Um, they then go on up into up to Alaska to find if anything the radiation levels in Alaska are even higher than they are in the rest of the world. Something so, tells me there isn't going to be a happy feel-good ending to this. <laughs> so they sail back to Australia. Um, every, they check the coast all around Japan and Russia and that, and everyone's everything's dead and blown up and nuked. They get back to Australia. This time the radio now the radiation levels are so high. It's months, as opposed to a year. Um, the only people that are doing roaring business are the Saudi Army saving souls. And uh, they decide to hold the last ever Australian Grand Prix, with many of the drivers choosing to die in spectacular car crashes rather than um, wow. <laughs> rather than face low radiation death. Um, there's fantastic sequence of the Grand Prix sequence. It's fantastic. People are stuntmen are piling porches into Jaguars in the... Sports cars, you know. Yeah. All these classic Ferraris and that just getting trashed while he's stumping, yeah, doing these suicidal racing things. And so it goes on to the end of the film as the radiation gets worse and people die, resulting in one of the bleakest endings you'll find in any cinema film ever. And I fucking love it. <laughs> but not, not because everyone dies. It's because... It's, this is a very rare example, if not unique amongst mainstream Hollywood movies, where it has, where the ending reaches a natural conclusion rather than some gung-ho fucking hero with a knife in his teeth, the gun at his belt, say, or some mad scientist saving the day. There's no uh, schmaltzy Hollywood ending. <coughs> no, there isn't. Um, and then when you consider this was a mainstream film in Australia, but it was mainly an American cast and American money, um, and it's got a cast that includes Gregory Peck, um, Fred Astaire, Ava Gardner, and, that, and Psycho Perkins, to name a few. Um, plus loads of these actors where it's, oh, it's him, and you look him up, he's in 12 Angry Men and all this sort of thing, yeah? yeah? You know, and it was kind of, I think it was Universal Studios did it, it's, it was their big film of the year. And it's got such black, everybody, well, not so the end, well, not at the end, didn't it? everybody dies, but how was they it, died, uh, what was the film for? Was it commercially successful? Yeah. Yeah. Was that more of the to do with the time? Might be, and the fact that it was based on a hugely popular novel. I mean, Neville, Sh Neville Shute's book on the beach is a classic novel in its own right that have won awards over the last couple of, previous couple of years. Um, Here's a concept. Do you think these films, I mean, I, the power of film and to change opinion and whatever, I don't know, mm -hmm. and obviously ultimately the power is in the hands of the politicians or the yeah. people who elect them. Do you think these films that got made almost as a kind of counterpoint to what was happening politically, do you think they, in a way, kind of 
changed the public persona and in a way made it less likely that these doomsday doomsday scenarios actually happened possibly would we would we be here now were it not for them that's a big question that is a good question and i mean i think that you got there's some there's some mileage in that because the original novel on the beach neville shoot wrote because he was kind of um you know obviously well, anyone with any sense is anti-nuclear war well, obviously, you know, yeah. so he wrote this kind of apocalyptic doomsday novel that kind of captured the public imagination because it was a bleak, all-out, end-of-the-world doomsday novel. And, you know, I think the film got made on the back of it. And Neville Shute remained, although there's a few, he conceded a few kind of plot points from the novel to the film. Yeah. Like there's one character where they end up going out, go falling in love with each other because they're strangers, but in the original novel they're brother and sister that just, you know, Okay. But it doesn't change the overall feel, feeling, a message of the movie sure. from the book. Um, he can try, but over the main, he can see a few plot points, but he can try, he can say, he can try, uh, sorry, contained most of the control over yeah. the general direction of the film and wrote the script himself. So, well, he supervised the script writing. But anyway, um, it's the film that he agreed to have released and wanted made, rather than having the ending, you know, we found a cure for radiation sickness because there is no cure for radiation even now, yeah? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I did think that films like this and Doctor Strangelove as well were probably, and probably the next one I'm going to talk about, were probably big influences on the whole kind of public opinions that changed in the late 1950s, early 1960s from the atom is our friend to nuclear power nine dunker. Yeah? For sure. Yeah. So um, if you want to sort of have a, a gloriously dark Christmas... And we haven't ended on the 21st. Go get on the beach or, you know, download it. You can stream it on various sites and that. 1959, Stanley uh, Kramer's adaptation of the classic Neville Schumer. Neville shoots a book on the beach, 1959. Awesome. Right. From the world ending with a big bang to the world ending in kind of a slow... What would you say? A kind of a slow, drawn-out, bleeding-to-death type yeah, thing? Yeah, really. kind of hemorrhaging its life force Absolutely. into the great abyss of oblivion. Because uh, not everything ends with a bang. Great societies, great uh, dynasties all tend to spend a lot of time sort of dying out. And that's the concept of this next film. Roll the trailer. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Move along! Hello, Theo. Have you been? I'm sorry about the theatrics. Police have been a pain lately. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years. I need your help. Not for me, a girl. I need to get her to the coast, past security checkpoints. It's hard for me to look at you. He had your eyes. So why did you come to me? 
I trust you. Show him. Now you know what's at stake. We have to meet the boat. What is this boat? The Human Project have sent a boat. The Human Project? Yes, the greatest minds in the world working for a new society. Your baby is the miracle the whole world has been waiting for. We will find a way to get you to the Human Project, I promise you. We're almost there, Keith. We're almost there. Okay, we are talking about Children of Men from 2006, uh, directed by Alfonso Coran. I hope I pronounced his name right. Um, most other notable directing credit was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Which um, is probably the best of the Harry Potter films, if you can scare up the last two, in my opinion. I haven't seen that one, so uh, I don't know, I don't know. But it um, stars Clive Owen, Michael Caine and Julianne Moore. Uh, it is 2027. Uh, in a chaotic world in which humans can no longer procreate, a former activist agrees to help transport a miraculously pregnant woman to sanctuary at sea, where her childbirth may help scientists save the future of humankind. Uh, nearly 20 years after a terrible affliction has caused the human race to become completely infertile, the UK has become an insular one-party police state, and government official Theo Faram, played by Owen, gets embroiled in the subversive plot conceived by his militant ex-partner, Julian, played by Julianne Moore. Um, a young immigrant girl has somehow managed to reach the late stages of pregnancy without miscarrying, and Fran must help her escape the oppressive UK regime to safety on a rescue ship just off the coast. Um, ironically, uh, although this is quite a heavy film, would you believe I saw this as a first date? <laughs> We, it was a toss-up between going to see Talladega Nights with Will Ferrell or Children of Men. And, uh, I think you chose right. I think we chose right. But I mean, I, put it this way, if you, if you can take your missus to see Children of Men on your first date and she wants a second date with you, you know you've got a keeper. <laughs> we did get to a second date. Um, I think we both looked at Talladega Nights and thought, a eh, bit of comedy, all right, but fancy something a little bit deeper. Probably went a bit too far in the other direction there. Um, but I do love this film all the same. Um, it's 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 based on the P.D. James novel, uh, Children of Men. Well, the same guy that writes the detective novels. Um, it's actually a woman, P.D. James. Yeah, the same woman that writes the detective. <laughs> yes, film. the same woman that writes the detective murder mysteries. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I had no idea that she'd. Re- I, I'm not aware of this. But I was not aware of this story or this concept until I saw the film. Excellent. Um, the film is fantastic. The portrayal of um, how. Britain has become this police state. It's frighteningly, um, frighteningly accurate, especially in the current political situation. Cameron, you wanker. Yeah, you can quite easily see how some kind of chaotic event, you know, if a crisis were to happen now and the government would decide that, you know, we need a period of stability, so we're not going to have elections for a while, you can quite easily see how this could lead on to a situation like this. Especially those wankers. Absolutely. 
um, when this came out, I think immigration into uh, into this country was also a slightly bigger political issue as well. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the most interesting things is that uh, because the UK, despite being a one-party police state, is considered to be fairly stable compared, it, it's hinted that the rest of the world is in a state of chaos. Um, people are desperately trying to get into the UK in children and men, and there are these kind of... Uh, they're supposed to be like sort of camps where the immigrants end up, but they're they're more like sort of small sort of cities that are constantly in a state of yeah, it's almost like loads of mini kind of escape New York type situations. It is, situations it is places, really. But you know, once you get inside one of these places, it's everyone for themselves, and you know, martial, you know, law and order breaks down. Um, but you still know from the background that it's uh, you know it's. It's the UK. It's, it's mm. Great Britain. It's England. It's uh, it, it's bizarre. It is a, a truly shocking film. Um, fantastic acting performances in this. Clive, probably Clive Owen's best film. Um, Michael Caine plays. Um, um, he's kind of cast essentially as his dope dealer, although he's a like a former academic who's a bit subversive, and is on the government's radars. You know, people yeah. that uh, are on the hit list. You know that are. You know, troublesome characters. Um, Julianne Moore is actually only in it for a very short period of time, and you'd have to watch the film to find out why that is. Um, so she doesn't really get beyond second gear, but I mean, her character is key to it. Um, but uh, and the uh, uh, the young African actress, I've forgotten. I haven't noted down her name. Who plays the uh, plays the the pregnant young young girl is absolutely brilliant as well. Uh, it's dark, it's atmospheric, it's beautifully shot. Um, there is an incredible scene um, towards the end uh, where this baby has actually been born and they have to carry the baby out and all of a sudden there's two warring factions and they just stop as they see a walking past carrying the, the child and there's just this moment amongst all this chaos, there's this moment of calm as they carry the baby through and then just as they're in safety, a rocket goes past and it all kicks off again. Mm. It's an unbelievable uh, cinematic moment. There's another version that I like, uh, because there's uh, Charlie Hamron's got a small role in it. You know, from... Uh, oh, uh, Sons of Anarchy yeah. and Green Street. And there's a sequence where, because he's playing one of the... Um, part of the kind of subversive kind of guerrilla force that's helping get the girl out. And they have this fight. I can't remember if it's another gang or whether it's with the police. And there's this big gun battle in which Charlie Ameren gets snuffed because he's fairly odd in the, early on in the film, so I'm not going to get too much away. But the whole thing is played out to King Crimson's in the court of the Crimson King. Remember that sequence? Off the top of my head, no. So oh. I, hope, I hope it does actually exist. It does. We have a point where we can edit it. I'll have to check Because I did that on my radio show. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I watched it on telly a couple of months back when it was on and I played in the court of the Crimson King because it reminded me. Fantastic. Mm. Um, must have skipped that one. It was a first date when I saw it. <laughs> I was very more distracted. But um, and you're not really a prog rocker, are you? Say, what I'm not really head? a prog rocker, no. But uh, I mean, I remember a lot of bits of the later parts of the film. There is a very brutal scene where uh, Clive Owen murders somebody with a car battery. But that's all. I, I won't. I won't ruin any more about that. But it's uh, you'll never look at a car battery again the same. Uh, so you've seen uh, Children of Men. Yeah, I've yeah. Um, <clears throat> seen it twice. I had a friend brought it round on DVD uh, at one point. I mean, maybe because this particular girl fancied the pants of Charlie Hamron. So that's the reason why she wanted to watch it, because um, they had Charlie Hamron in it. Are you sure he's in it? Yeah. Yeah? 
Is it only got a smallish role? He dies about 20 minutes in, but. I'm trying to think. I can't yeah. think of that. He know. plays a sort of skin, one of the skinheady type, um, sort of like subversive revolutionaries at the early in the film. I'll check. I'm yeah. Sure. Well, this is going to happen the gag reel if it isn't, but Absolutely. I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm 99% sure it is. Yeah, and then, for the gag reel, he's 99% sure this actor is in this particular yeah. film. Same guy that was in Green Streets and so Sons of Anarchy. Well, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's where you got to watch it the first time, and then it was on film four a couple of months back, and I watched it again. I said, very, very impressive movie. Really, really like it. Excellent. So that was Children of Men from 2006. We're going to go back to a kind of loosely nuclear kind of based storyline for our next end of the world scenario. And, uh, well, this is the trailer. Enjoy. The time is now 10.41. 19 minutes before countdown. 19 minutes Time is now 10.46. 14 minutes before countdown. 14 minutes. 14 minutes before countdown. You are advised to stay inside. The time is now 10.51. 9 minutes before countdown. 9 minutes. 9 minutes before countdown. 9 minutes while the world waits and wonders. Share if you dare the unbearable suspense of men and women who have never in their lives faced greater peril. The day the earth caught fire will burn itself into your memory. Is it fiction or is it fact? What's the nutation of the earth? Nutation? Well, it's a slight oscillation on the earth's axis, caused by the pull of the sun and the moon it's on changed. the equator. You see, there's a slight bulge on the... There's also an item here about axis rotation. There's been 11 degree variation, whatever that may mean. They've shifted the tilt of the earth. The stupid, crazy, irresponsible bunglers. They've finally done it. From the presses of Fleet Street, today's headlines blaze into tomorrow's history. And here are the people who report the most sensational story a newspaper has ever had to print. A story that might be the last it ever prints. These are the people who fought in the most explosive threat ever to face the world. Jeannie, the girl on the government switchboard, and Stenning, one-time ace reporter, striving to make a comeback in life and love. You happen to walk in at the end of a black Monday. Well, what about a foggy Sunday? Oh, come on now, Pete. We're too old. For I'm not too late. old. Look, I said you could use the phone oh, and that's Oh, come on now, Jeannie. What do you want? The slow build-up? Hot hands of the movies? Knee troubles in a coffee bar? This is Maguire, the science editor who unearths the deadly facts. What's the hell kind of fog? Only comes up to the fourth floor. God knows better than to come up here. This place is like the anti-room to hell. It's really chaos at London Airport, Mr. McGuire. It usually is. Question is, how do we get home tonight? Yes, I know. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> yeah. Countdown must have started by now. Think up, then. Here's how. Twenty-two. Twenty-one. To the luck of the human race. The day the earth caught fire fearlessly tackles a ferocious sudden. It will seize your imagination, stretch your nerves with suspense more compelling than any you have known in a cinema before. Four, three, two, one. Yeah. Val Guest, 
classic 1961 British apocalyptic movie, The Day the Earth Caught Fire. What? Um, our guest, um, uh, interesting director, did, um, uh, has done some absolute classics, including the 1967, uh, coming back to, what's his name? Peter Sellers. The 1967 conversion of Casino Royale, one with Big and Woody Allen, and the classic Hammer Quatermass trilogy. But, however, he also did Cannonballs the Boys in Blue, which is, in my opinion, the worst e- film ever. Is that so? It's not so bad, it's great. No, that's just so bad. bad. It's it so bad shite. that we will probably never ever mention that. No, as, as, outside the concept of being the worst film ever, mate. Yeah. Um, so, interesting character. Uh, the plot, it, but so this one's based in, it's, it's based in contemporary, well then contemporary 1961. There's an alcoholic and failing newspaper hack. Um, he has been reduced to writing filler inches for the Daily Express. And uh, when uh, London and the other part, and, and similar parts of the world, are subject to a massive and unexpected heat wave, he's sent around the Met, Met Office to get a story. Um, this leads to him doing a bit of digging, and he discovers that uh, a couple of months previous, a series of uh, US and Soviet one-upmanship nuclear weapon tests over the course of a few days have actually knocked the Earth out of out of orbit and send it spiralling slowly into the sun. Um, a bit of um, these days, it's a bit of a far-fetched possibility because they written they would you'd need a the bomb to actually big enough to knock the Earth out of orbit will probably blow it up instantly, but. It's an interesting concept, you know? It, it, it's, a, it's a... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, say it's falling into water sun. Uh, although it will be many years before the Earth eventually does spiral into the sun, um, there's the thing called the Goldilocks Zone, which is kind of like the area that's capable of supporting life on Earth as we know it. And as it's the Earth gets, move out of the Goldilocks As the Earth is moving Ooh. towards the spot, each, you know, slowly curving in, and by the month it's getting progressively hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. Uh, in London, the Thames boils dry, uh, the, the polar ice caps are melting, and uh, the uh, cities are covered in a low-lying mist caused by any water immediately precipitating up into the air and evaporating. Um, and this of course, doesn't sound like a parallel lapse either. No. <laughs> and again, it's kind of... Uh, so this is also then setting up a greenhouse effect, which is increasing the temperature rapidly. All around the world, martial law breaks out and uh, and riots and the like. As whilst the UK government leads to the kind of a worldwide project to uh, for yet more nuclear explosions, carefully positioned to at least stabilise the Earth in orbit, or even better, edge it back out into its previous orbit. And that's the. But I can't go any further without giving huge plot points away. But. Uh, I will just point out, it has, it has got a beautifully ambiguous ending. Did they, don't they? Are they safe? Are they not safe? And it's just very, very subtly done. I'm not going to mention any more than that because it will give the, the one of the best movie endings of all time away. But, um, yeah, watch out for that last shot. Uh, great cast, Edward Judd, um, best known for his, he uh, did a lot of Hammer films, um, uh, again, friend of friend of our guests, he did uh, Hammer Jack the Ripper, Oh Lucky Man, The Vault of Horror uh, series for Amicus. Um, Leona McKern, TV's Rumble of the Bailey, but also known for doing everything from Shakespeare and Man from All Seasons down to a, down to a uh, 
playing a role in the Beatles film Help. Um, Peter Butterworth from the Carry On films and the first great train robbery in one of his first first ever acting roles. Um, Bernard Braden, who was a uh, well-known TV journalist and newspaper reporter, actually playing himself. And uh, Janet Munro, who was a very talented young British actress who died tragically early of cancer, um, but was also in Swiss Family Robinson and the uh, rather controversial um, sort of like homoerotic film Sebastian from the late 1960s. Filmed uh, from the Daily Express offices in Fleet Street, uh, and a lot of the Daily Express staffers play small roles or as there as extras, and hence the reason why uh, Bernard Braden was involved because he had a column in the Daily Express at the time. Um, really, really well acted. It's a good British film. There's no overdrawn drama. It's matter of fact. It's gritty. You know, there's no hype and hysteria apart from obviously when the riots of civilization starts to break down. You know. It's kind of like the antithesis of uh, uh, Doctor Strange, though, which is all about American over-the-top politics. That's yeah. Very, that's very interesting. Um, kind of, it's a little bit kind of pro-British anti-superpower in the fact that it's the Americans and the Russian bombs that are knocking the Earth out of orbit, and it's uh, Britain organising the, uh, the the five, what the then five nuclear powers, US, Soviet Union, China, UK and France to kind of coordinate their explosions to put the earth back into orbit. Um, but it's not kind of not too that over the top. Jingoistic, no, 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 far from it. Um, it's kind of tipping a hat more towards the British step up a lip than flying the Union Jack. And uh, the other thing that is really worth noting, that at the very beginning of the film, because the, start, the film starts and the rest of the story it jumps back about a year and a half and then plays forward. And then as at the very beginning of the film, it's a black the film's in black and white, but you've got this orange tint to the picture. And then as the earth gets hotter, the orange tint starts coming back very subtly and gets brighter and brighter and brighter until it's a fairly vivid orange tint at the end. Such. Yeah, really, really subtly done. But you don't suddenly notice the orange tint until it's kind of quite noticeable, but then you walk, walk, rewind the DVD and you go, Fuck, that's been around for about the last 20 minutes, getting brighter and brighter. <laughs> so it's a really, really nice touch. Um, my opinion, um, along with quite, along with the Quite a Mass films, Val Guest's finest hour. Um, ever seen this one? I haven't seen this. All three of your films, I must admit, I, I now desperately want to say I haven't seen any of them. Hmm. Heard of the heard of the first one from the beach yeah absolutely i hadn't heard of of this one at all it sounds fascinating was it very successful or was it more of a local i can't it imagine was successful it... in britain and yeah. sort of like, you know other parts of the of the commonwealth you know like uh i know that i was talking to a canadian friend on facebook about this and he was saying oh so i can remember that being on tv and that was really good it's one of the best films of uh about the end of the world the possible one yeah so Excellent choice. Yeah, so, yeah, The Daily Earth Caught Fire, directed by Val Guest, starring Edward Judd and the Alma Kern from 1961. Next, in fact, my final choice. Now, this is very interesting. Um, I'll roll the trailer first. Absolutely mad. 
The riots began because the stores could not meet the demand of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. He's the guy that writes horror books. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. See this? It's a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. <sighs> Okay, that was the trailer for In the Mouth of Madness 1994. Another opportunity for myself to worship at the Temple of John Carpenter. We featured um, two of his previous films in the Alien Invasion episode, mm-hmm. the, the Thing and They Live. Um, also, a, notable, a whole string of notable films, The Fog, Escape from New York, um, so on and so forth. Uh, my fav- one of my favourites. Favorite one of my favourites. Apart from the thing and that is... Uh, Oh, what's the one? Assault on Precinct 13. Would you believe I haven't seen Assault I'm desperate to see Assault on Precinct 13. I have a growing Christmas list. Like I said, I wanted to get another another iconic director in here as well as uh, Kubrick. Always looking for an opportunity to mention another We've done so well so far, Kubrick. Well, guess. It's uh, uh, it's an all-star edition. Stan Kramer. John Carpenter. But uh, rumour has it, and I've I've yet to completely 100% confirm this, but... uh, said to be Carpenter's last great film on a string of great films. Um, and also, although it's a tentative link, the third part of uh, Carpenter's uh, apocalyptic sort of trilogy, starting with The Thing, um, middle part is Prince of Darkness, which is a film I've yet to see, but I will be watching very soon, and concludes with In the Mouth of Madness, although they are three independent films, you don't need prior history to watch them all. Um, Stars Sam Neill, uh, Julie Carmen. I can't pronounce this bloke's name no matter how many tries. Jurgen, Jurgen Proch now. Um, quite a famous actor. You will recognise him if you see him. Yeah, He's I know. Another all oh, that guy. Little Proch now. Yeah. And a cameo from Charlton Heston. Would you believe? Um, with a gun? Not with a gun. Bloody no. hell! Definitely it's not rare. with a gun. Plot is as follows. Uh, John Trent, played by Neil, is an insurance fraud investigator. Whilst investigating what he believes to be a fraudulent claim by the publishing company regarding the disappearance of Sutter Kane, the world's most popular horror novelist, on the eve of the publication of his latest work, Trent soon finds himself drawn into the dark world of the mysterious writer, quite literally, and uh, the more popular Kane's books become, the darker, crazier, and more unhinged society seems to become. Uh, that's all I've put because I, I would really urge everybody to uh, to watch this film. Um, it's based on the tradition of H.P. Lovecraft type stories, um, insanity being a, 
a very popular recurring theme the where right Cthulhu rising from the pit. Absolutely, it's it it you know there are elements of that in there, but modern day setting, um, this had me right from the beginning because it starts with Sam Neill being dragged into a padded cell in a, an insane asylum. Anything that starts with uh, Sam Neill being dragged into an insane asylum and being a John Carpenter film, uh, I just thought this had to be great. And it absolutely was. Um, a very different take on the end of the world, this. I mean, first of all, you don't know is the you know is the writings of this of this writer actually influencing events or are you purely watching what this bloke is portraying in his books is it mm. real is uh, sam neill's character just a character in the book who's become self-aware it it's all very very cleverly done um i have to mention the there are some creatures in this they are being drawn from the you know the dimension beyond by the writing of this mm. author and gradually becoming real and they bear a striking resemblance in terms of like tentacles and stuff to the creature from the thing and i think this is where the link comes mm. there is a lot of debate raging on them um, i remember rightly now i've got a funny feeling i might have seen this um although once a good few years ago yeah and if I remember rightly, the creatures also are very similar to the, as you say, the, the Lovecraft Cthulhu mythos monsters. Uh, tentacles and... There are lots of tentacles. and eyes and that kind of thing, yeah. There are lots of eyes and yeah. lots of grotesques. Um, from a special effects point of view, I mean, it's physical effects. It's mm. There's no... I don't think there's any CGI in this. Um, it lends much more to the, the creature from the thing, just the way the tentacles shoot mm. out from it. I mean, no coincidence it's the same director... I think he's thrown it out there same for you effect, to make same your, special effects scene. It you know? would not surprise me. I, mm. I think it is the same. I mean, it, it's some uh, fifteen years after the, the th- maybe not quite, maybe more, just over a decade after yeah. the thing. Um, but it bears a striking resemblance. Obviously, the much more modern day mm. setting, and the thing is set in the uh, the research station, so it's a much more isolated film thing. Whereas this is set in. Partly set in a, the, you know, in a, a metropolis type city, um, but there is a bit where, uh, well, they're trying to find, uh, while Sam is trying to find the missing writer, uh, he basically ends up in, is it the fictional or is it the real sort of town setting of the latest book, or the, actually the penultimate book? Mm. The latest book is this, obviously the title of the In the Mouth of Madness that they're trying to publish, but they need to get hold of the manuscript from. So he's trying to find this writer. Um, but the the previous book um, names a town, and by piecing together some of the covers of the book, Sam Neill figures out that there's a map. Um, but does is this town real? Uh, it, it's uh, it's a bit of a head fuck film. This one, mm. you, you, um, Sam Neill is brilliant. This is one of his best films, without a doubt. There was a can... clutch, wasn't there, back back about that period of kind of old gag of the little films came out. Um, about kind of layered realities, because around about the same time, was it Cronenberg brought out Existence? Uh, Existence is, yeah, it's all, I think it's and, the, uh, what was it, the one that we watched a couple of years back, the 13th Floor was from that about that period. 13th wasn't it? Floor is, I think that's a bit later. Is it a bit later, right? Um, but again, it's in the kind of thing, isn't it? Kind of, kind of realities. Of sort of stacked reality. Pre Matrix stacked reality. I tell you the other one that's mm. quite similar. We watched Dark City, mm. where it, you, that, I think that's probably better than 13th yeah. Floor. Um, yeah, it, what is and isn't real seems to have been... We were talking about this off microphone. Um, films from the 90s. This was the decade when I kind of 
threw off parental influence in going to see films and was, you know, became old enough to go to the cinema. When we were at college, we used to have sort of like fortnightly film trips with all their mates, didn't we? We Sue did, a few, all we that did lot, yeah. had a few for him to see some films. Um, but there's been remarkably few 90s films that I've, I've been speaking about, considering it was technically, you know, my era of uh, discovery of going to, you know, making the choices to go and see these films. Um, didn't see this at the cinema at the time, completely fell below my radar. Um, but uh, watched this for the first time just a few days ago on the recommendation of another podcast um, round about sort of Halloween time, about, you know, what a great end of the world film it is. And um, it's truly phenomenal. Like I said, it's the end of the world brought on by the calling of something primal and evil. Um, and ultimately you, you, you lose track of what is reality and what is fiction or you know, I, I, I do urge everyone to go and see this film. It's uh, phenomenal. Not quite my new favourite John Carpenter film. I think, he, again, like Kubrick, his, favorite, his best films, I don't stack they them. They have canon. I mean, people like Carpenter, I mean, oh, I've got a Woody Allen connection coming up in a, in a minute. And, um, you know, something like Woody Allen films. They, 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 they should be, you know, those sort of directors should be um, seen as a body of work rather than individuals because everything's got something to say yeah yeah i would i would agree with that there is a, a very definite point it's a director having a look at the world around and giving his take but mm. you know it it's within the concept of film and story and narrative and it obviously this is an end of the world feature and a supernatural feature as well uh, so you can't draw exact parallels but it's kind of really directors either paranoia or uh, you know Sort of hidden fears being brought to the bear in the form of film, um, and it's it, it's a very primal film. I absolutely loved it. Um, I'm again now going to have to track down <laughs> uh, Prince of Darkness just to see if that connection is as as clear as as mm. it's made out. Um, I'm told that was a, another good it film. It is a bloody good film. You've Prince seen of it, yes. Yeah, Prince of Darkness. Not recently, but I've seen it a couple of times. Superb. I think I, I think you will love this film. I will lend it to mm. you shortly. I'm sure it's going to be right up your street. And once again, I would recommend anybody go out and check this out, especially if you uh, if you're a Carpenter fan and or a completist. This is uh, I, I would have to. I've seen Vampires and I've seen Ghosts of Mars, which came out after. Mm. I was a little disappointed with both of those. Yeah. I think this is very much looking light, unless he has a, a stellar return to form with whatever projects he's planning. Probably the last. What was that last film. one he brought out last year? There was one in t- 2010, again, set in a... Yeah. Or has he got another one that's coming out next year at some point? I, I, he's bound to have. I, yeah. I, I think he's he's took his foot off the uh, accelerator. Well, he doesn't need to work anymore, does I he? I have to mention, one mm. of the things that I saw in an interview with him is... Um, we, we talked about this when we had our bit of Carpenter Fest loving in the Alien Invasion episode, that uh, he had uh, you know an interest in scoring the music as well. There's a fantastic rock soundtrack to this. I don't mm. know whether he plays the guitar, whether he got a guitar. I know he's a very talented musician, Carpenter. But there's a, a great uh, rock score to this, a, a theme to the beginning and the end, which adds to it. And the music and the, the atmospherics. One of the things about the early Carpenter films, um, they've got a very you know typical sort of 80s tinge to the music. Yeah. Their 80s films. Got that riff that goes... Dum, 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 dum. Yeah. He seems to have dispensed with the um, the kind of 80s MIDI synthesizers and yeah. stuff and has gone more for a, 
uh, either um, like a, a you know a choral or orchestral approach or a hard rock approach at the beginning and the end. Uh, it, it's absolutely brilliant. The music is notable as well. I struggle to fault this. I, I think if you're if you're looking for blood and guts, gore, horror, it doesn't. It's not that visceral. It's a mm. much more clever film than that, and it doesn't really need to be that gory to be shocking. Um, my new favourite film at the moment was only a short term yeah. time that until the next that one time, comes until the next one comes along. But certainly the best film I've seen in a long, long time. That is In the Mouth of Madness, nineteen ninety four. Okay, excellent. Well, I'm going to finish up. I'm going to go back to 1951. You've gone very retro. I've gone one. very retro You've with got this. anything later than the late 60s? Was Nothing later than the early 60s. The early 60s. That's included. Um, what do you call it? Are they so bad as great yeah. coming up? Yeah. Ah. But um, we'll play the trailer because you have got a trailer for this one. When worlds collide. Written in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double-checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves, fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that was When Worlds Collide from 1951. Now, I picked this one for special reasons. This isn't the best end of the world film. There are other ones that if I was just going to go for a general apocalypse movie, would have would have probably topped this. But um, I was reading up some stuff the other week when we decided that we were going to do end of the world things. I started doing a little bit of research and about the whole 2012 mythos. And I wasn't going to go 2012 because if you want to hear the film 2012... I think in episode two, I'll make we that so bad. That one to we shred. We shred. <laughs> you shoot that one down in flames in episode two. But, so go, you can get to episode two still, can't you? You can get all of the episodes. Right, so go back to episode two if you want to hear about my, my view in 2012. But one of the uh, ways that the world is supposed to be ending, one of many ways the world is supposed to be ending in 2012, is that there's a rogue planet or star in our solar system um, heading this way that's going to impact at noon on, or midnight on the 12th of uh, no, December this year. Um, the stuff that none, none of the astronomers admit to seeing, and bearing in mind astronomy is one of the few sciences that's still amateur led. You think someone would have seen it and said something before now, but anyway, um, the plot of When Worlds Collide, um, so the film, the film's based on a novel from 1937 by Philip Gordon White, 
uh, Edwin Balmer, who are a couple of fairly um, influential early sci-fi writers. Star called Belos has, has entered the solar system, and uh, the scientists believe it's going to be it's on a collision course with Earth. Um, astronomer Dr. Cole Hendren goes to the UN with his findings and uh, tries to convince the UN um, and the US government to start building a fleet of ARC ships uh, to take humanity to a planet called Zyra, which is orbiting said rogue star. Um, uh, basically, the star's going to swallow Earth, but the planet's going to miss Earth, although it's going to have a, on, on one particular orbit, it's going to be damn close. The UN and various governments start to row and debate about who's going to do what and who's going to finance the projects and uh, basically it breaks down into a kind of big slangy mash. It's obvious that nothing's going to get done that way, either at governmental level or international level. However, Hendron's approached by an incredibly wealthy industrialist who said um, he will finance the building of an arc rocket, providing he can select the passengers that are going to go on board. However, Hendron and his uh, kind of uh, team that is assembled uh, turn around and say, the most you're going to get on here is one, one seat, and the rest of it's going to be down to us. After an argument, you know, one seat's better than saving yourself, better than saving his entire family, he's taking it, kind of thing. Uh, ship construction starts in earnest, and uh, it's implied that in various parts of the world, other wealthy individuals are financing rocket, more arc rockets that are going to go off to... Um, the desire of the new planet when it's within launch range. As the ship gets near completion, however, the Earth is buzzed by the planet Zyra, that's the near miss that they calculated, and uh, the gravitational effects cause havoc on Earth. The seas rise, the um, great big the San Andreas fault sends off of California into the ocean, um, Japan ends worked, wiped out by uh, Mount Fuji erupting and there's hell on earth, effectively. Um, uh, society worldwide's break down into anarchy and this, that, and the other. And uh, a lot of the other ships are destroyed in the in the anarchy. Um, well, it doesn't actually tell you how many, which I'll come to in a minute. At this point, um, Hendron decides to hold a lottery of all the people that have sought refuge in the compound where the ship's being built and helping to construct the ship, uh, as to see who's going to go on board which I'll come to in a minute, where that's an interesting plot point. Um, and then as Doomsday approaches and it's time to launch, those who know that are going to get left behind begin to get restless and uh, start a rebellion within the work compound that's building the ship. And uh, not only is the future of the project, but the future of the whole of humanity is hanging by a thread. Pom, pom, pom! A um, couple of interesting things about this. First of all, I mentioned that they hold a lottery to see who's going to get on board this ship. It seems that um, uh, to magically have your winning lottery ticket, it doesn't matter who you are or what race you are or what religion you are when you put your lottery ticket in. Your lottery ticket's going to come out. You've got to be white, young, good-looking, middle-class and American. Is that a plot point or...? Well, it's um, if you look at any of the debate on the movie on the net, there's lots of debate whether it's very interesting you mentioned those stereotypes and you know who's going to be so I'll come to that in my so bad it's great film later I've got a little bit of that as well (laughs) and there's some of the science in this like this star appearing out of nowhere travelling at great velocity that means it's only detected a year out from earth etc 
is basically flawed. However, because this film's 1951, you can tend to overlook that, you know, because science has moved on since then. A lot of the stuff was probably... It, well, this was hard science fiction when when the book was written in, in 1930... I think 1932, actually, the book was written. So It's, it's the kind of thing... When I was younger, that kind of plot point would really annoy me, and I think it would put me off the film. Yeah. I think I'm a lot more forgiving to that. Yeah. If the concept is there, isn't it? I mean, because, like, you know... You could turn, you could you could take the whole thing around, and because there are rogue planets speeding through the universe, I detected some fairly recently. Maybe it's like a red dwarf. Thing. You know the thing about rogue planets is they're black, and the thing about space is it's black. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We thought it was grit on the monitor. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you can overlook those kind of little science points. The film has got an interesting development tale to it. Um, the rights were originally sold to Cecil B. DeMille in 1935. What the hell would he have made of this? Because film? he wanted to make a sci-fi film. Did he ever make a sci-fi no. film? Yeah, no. Because science fiction back then was quite a rare genre. Yeah. I mean, you can only. I mean, there's things like uh, no reply. The German, uh, early German one, no reply from floating platform thirteen and Fritz Lang's Metropolis, and uh, the adaptation of uh, the Shape of Things by H.G. Wells. But there's not that many. But a space film was something Cecil B. DeMille wanted to make, but he never did. When was this film? 1951 it got made in the end so was this before the kind of 1950s it's one of the uh, early kind of ones that kick-started the whole because i think both of our um both of our so bad it's great are from the 50s yeah uh, but later on so you reckon they could be almost direct uh yeah this uh, was a um along with the 1953 war of the worlds and that kind of thing and there's some of the other early ones like earth versus the flying saucers and that which helped but that's a B-movie, I know, but this was one of the first mainstream science fiction. Mm. not saying it's Lee first, but it's one of the front-runners. Um, but there was something about the 1935 position that got made. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was down to play the lead role. Uh, the art direction on the, on the film was done by one called, guy called Charlie Bonestell, who um famous, famous guy for, for illustrating science fiction book covers right through to the to his death in the early 1980s. And also was the guy that did a lot of the artwork for the NASA. Um, not going to say the fake moon landings, but <laughs> but he did all the artwork for, you know, the NASA, this is our proposed space city type project. Um, good cast. Uh, Richard Deere is, uh, plays the uh, heroic lead. Um, later went on to play in The Drowning Pool and the Clint Eastwood film Firefox. Barbara Rush is the female love interest. Um, loads and loads of US TV roles, quite high-profile ones, including key roles in Love Boat. Um, she was a recurring character in Batman, um, etc. John Hoyt, uh, the Spartacus Julius Caesar, student prince of the robe, etc. And uh, Larry Keating from um, Carson, it was, uh, Above and Beyond and Carson City and Western and War film fame. Um, Really, really well acted. Um, so some of the science and some of the not bit politically correct with the kind of, you know, only white young Americans can come on board the ship. Very enjoyable, quite well acted. Um, so although the science is a bit iffy these days, if you kind of think in the 1950s, it's actually quite a serious, makes sense film. Yeah? There was a sequel to the novel, Rudolph Mao, the director of this one, 
Uh, also did um, 300 Spartans was his best one, the other big sword and, sword and yeah. sandal epic. Um, was uh, interested in filming, but studio never... It wasn't a big enough hit. Quite influential film, it was a big enough hit at the box office to make it worthwhile. And it's one of the eight films referenced in the theme tune for the Rocky Horror film. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, science fiction double feature. Ah. So, uh... Highly recommended. When Worlds Collide from 1951. I'm intrigued as to what Cecil Peter Mill would have made of it, or have made yeah. of it. I don't think it would have been a great, uh, you know, a great political or social statement. But I think it would have looked fantastic if they'd have let Cecil Peter Mill. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a sequence. One of the great unanswered film questions. Yeah, I mean, like the sequence where all the um, towards the end where they're trying to launch the ship with all the rioters running up the ship. <laughs> Everything from pitchforks to burning crosses, etc. Um, not burning crosses. Burning like crosses. <laughs> Is well, that a different film? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was watching Mississippi Burning the other night. No, um, but they're running that. It's like one of these Dracula things, you know, where they're trying to burn in brands and pitchforks, or they're trying to kill the vampire, but they're trying to destroy the, the ship. Because they can't get on the ship. Yeah, they're, trying they're all to trying to either it. get on it or destroy wow. it to stop anyone. We can't go, no one can go to it, you? Um, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's would have done that for real. He would have made a real size spaceship, 35 cameras, and genuinely got half a million people to storm it. <laughs> Here's a question. All of them, you've focused on a lot of old films, um, old in terms of you know, a few decades yeah. past. Um, it's interesting that there hasn't seemed to have been any, you know, I can't see the, uh, you know, the, the, was it the, what was the first one again? On the Beach. I can't see On the Beach being remade. It was remade about five years ago in Australia. It was well, Australian Almost film. directly? Or, uh, yeah, direct adaptation. Um, as, a, as Hollywood, I can't see them no, getting their teeth no. into any of these films. and <coughs> Not without Bruce Willis in a vest turning up. No. Or doing a... a it, it's strange. It, it, I, I don't think any of these are kind of heroic enough stories, aren't they? There are... This is... Well, most of, of them, the war gets shagged in the end, so... <laughs> it does. And you it don't does. get... I mean, that's why, That's the other reason why I selected... We don't like happy endings films. here, do we? <laughs> I, no. I think we're too... Uh, are we too cynical or too realistic? Or? No, I think they think it's a bit of both. We yeah. are the cynical... Change the name, not Crash and Burn. It's the Cynical Realist Podcast. Yeah. Uh, abandon all hope, all ye who enter yeah. here or listen to this podcast. Yeah. The war's going to die and you're going to die with it. Marvellous. On that cheery note, uh, we'll take a break there and we'll come back with uh, this episode, So Bad It's Great. That movie was pretty good. What? That movie gets an MG straight up, straight up MG material. Honey, is that Robert De Niro across the street? Hey, yo. Sure looks like him. Can't be, though. Yeah, you. He's calling to us. Let's just go. But it's Bobby fucking D, honey. Hey, yo. That's right. It's Bobby fucking De Niro over here. Hey, a lot of people don't know this about me. Yeah, I'm mingling down here with the drug dealers, the pimps, the pushers, the low-level gangsters, you know. Honestly, I'm slinging some shit myself. You may not know this about me, but I'm a fan of podcasts. Yeah, I've been listening to these guys' bloodbaths and boomsticks. A couple of knuckleheads from around the way. You got... John Smallberries, what a fucking name on this guy. You got Corey G, the guy's fucking half retarded over here. Likes John Woo, for fuck's sake. 
Then you got Tim Gross, he's got the movie watching Constitution of a Billy Goat. Hey, find these guys at bloodbathsandboomsticks.blogspot.com. Long fucking name, but just go find it, it's worth it. You knuckleheads got that? Yeah? Bloodbaths and Boomsticks, it's on The House. Good evening, folks. Do you enjoy action and adventure? Romance and comedy? How about long strolls on the beach and a fine champagne by moonlight? Do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain? Or would you rather listen to some in-depth conversation about film where many timely and poignant observations and witticisms are made? Mo here from the Drunk on VHS podcast. And if you like any of those things, then I have some bad news for you. Drunk on VHS has none of these. But you should listen anyway. Because I asked him nicely and said, please. Oh wait. Please. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes exclusively at... CouchCare.com Bring the family. Bring your friends. And we're back for the final part of the show. So bad, it's great. It is. It is. I'm not going to let you mess up the time. It's been so bad, it's everything. But uh, it's so bad, it's great. I'm going to go with... I'm keeping with a slightly retro tinge to a lot of the films we've, uh, we've, we've had in this episode. Um, Monster from Green Hell from 1958. man and beast as the mighty herd stampede in panic before the paralyzing fear of these monsters from the green hell the animals flee from green hell this i have seen and there is something perhaps even monstrous but a thing of nature not of evil spirits this is the drone of death the terrifying sound of the monstrous cosmic ray mutations unleashed upon the jungle from a rocket run wild. Can you guess how big the creature itself must be? Yeah. But we won't have to guess at it, Dan. We'll see for ourselves. Out of all mankind's millions, only a handful know the full horrifying danger. Their strange safari to fight the giant insect enemy filmed with thrilling impact. Battle with the warlike Anagas, driven wild by their superstitious fear of the monsters. See the subatomic barrage. Powerless against these invincible enemies.
um, directed by Kenneth G. Crane. I had a look through some of his other films. There is um, what looks like a, it's either a very misogynistic or, you know, an early pro-feminist film mm. called Manster, <laughs> which I haven't seen, but uh, sounds intriguing. And uh, later on, he did one called Slaughter's Big Ripoff. Um, about um, it's almost like a shaft type character. It's mm. a, a, a big black guy who uh, who busts heads from the look. It does look. So like this guy one. has worked in um, B movies and uh, exploitation. A bit of later on, he went into X. He, he upgraded to black exploitation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is a Monster from Green Hell. Stars uh, Jim Davis, Robert Griffin, and Barbara Turner who I think were very familiar to people of the era from TV. Barbara Soda rings big bells. I didn't recognise her when I saw her, and she's got a terrible role in this. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think the only female role in the film, and, uh, well, well, we'll get into stereotypes a bit, as I said, later on, but uh, I'll give you a little bit of a run through it as we go through. Um, okay, it's the 1950s. Man has not yet ventured beyond the, uh, the reaches of the Earth's atmosphere, so this is pre- Gagarin. It's in yeah. kind of the early forerunner of the space race. Um, and in a very tacky looking science lab somewhere in America, Dr. Quint Brady, played by Davis, and his assistant, uh, Dan. He's, he's always referred to as Dan because they're mates. He's not a professor or a doctor. He's just, Dan, give me, give me some feedback on this. And Dan's role seems to be to more or less repeat everything that... Uh, so, here's a scientific equivalent of Baz from the Happy Mondays. A little bit, without the dancing. Unlikely scientific duo. And judging by the standard of the science, it makes them all the more unlikely. They're in charge of finding out what happens, you know, what dangers there are um, from space travel. I think this was probably something pre-space travel. People didn't really genuinely know whether humans could survive in space. I think no, that's why they... 57, 58, they're still foreign dogs up monkeys, aren't they? Now we lead on to that. This, in fact, is literally what these guys do. Ah. They send creatures into space. Um, the fear here um, is radiation. Um, should anything travel beyond the confines of the planet, um, there is ex- increased exposure to radiation. The Van Allen belt. Ah, but we're not talking about modern radiation. We are talking about the kind of radiation, not the kind of radiation that gives you radiation poisoning like you've already talked about. Uh, we are talking about crazy 1950s B-movie radiation, the kind that causes scientifically unlikely mutations. I mean, it makes you, what, make you wear your underpants over, uh, inside out and want to fly. Obviously, we have very different ideas on scientifically unlikely mutations. Um, Why don't we cut the killer shrews? Absolutely. Brady and Dan's research involves them blasting small animals out into space in rockets, exposing them to short bursts of the crazy radiation before the rockets return safely to Earth, get recovered, and the animals return to the lab so the effects can be studied. Uh, one such experiment goes awry, and a rocket containing a number of wasps bit of a clue to the creature that we're talking about here a bit of wasps get blasted out far beyond the proposed distance exposing the wasps to much greater than planned amounts of crazy 1950s b-movie radiation um now the rocket itself because it's sort of return parabola has been thrown out completely um it returns to earth not in the nearby countryside but somewhere off the coast of africa Cut to six months later, Dr. Brady notices a disturbing story in the papers about reports of an unidentified giant monster-stroke creature 
terrorizing the indigenous people of a remote area of equatorial Africa. Dan, seemingly being extremely thick, fails to see the connection, but Dr. Brady is convinced, and perhaps the increasing number of mutant animals piling up in his lab after short trips up into space being exposed to crazy radiation would appear to back, back this up. The only exception being guinea pigs for some reason. Whereas everything else comes back either twice the size or its offspring gets born twice the size. Guinea pigs come back and their fur has changed colour. This is a faucet that is not fully explained in the film. But, what they uh, should have done is sold that concept of pets or us. He's on the guinea pigs. Absolutely. Okay. This poor guinea pig quid, goes man. up brown and apparently comes back bright white. <laughs> it's quite funny. Um... There we go. Dan asked the question, you don't suppose this creature could have me a mutated giant wasp, do you? Now, one of the things that, yeah. one of the many, many things that this film does wrong, um, it completely, the very next scene, the film completely blows its bolt totally and reveals the hideous creature. Unfortunately, what is supposed to be a terrifying giant mutant wasp about the size of a bus appears to be constructed out of papier mache <laughs> And you can sadly see ropes being used to drag it across the shot. Um, our creature sadly resembles an infant school art project that's gone horribly wrong. Uh, and that's basically the, you know, the, the setup for it. This doctor um, and his assistant... Now there's a big movie for you. What's that? Attack of the, of the Infant School Art Project. Attack of the Infant School Art Project. Um, they then set Going across... pre-production uh, after Christmas. Oh, you... Okay, they set off to uh, Equatorial Africa. I think it's supposed to be French Equatorial because they they land. Is it Lib Libreville or um, it's a genuine city? I did look this up. Uh, um, now the problem with um, I'm trying to think what the Monrovia. No, no, it's definitely Libra something or other. I, I don't know. No, no, there is a capital in the capital of Monrovia. No, Monrovia is the capital of. I believe it's what is now modern-day Gabon. So uh, Right, I couldn't tell you what modern-day Gabon but, used to uh, be. but There we go. Um, evidently, they don't, for filming purposes, travel over to uh, to F Equatorial Africa. They Let try me guess, they kind of flash. Meanwhile, in, on the bottom. There is a... They do cut over to, uh, to this particular area of Africa where there is a different doctor and his daughter. Um, mm. Like I said, she's the only female cast member in this. Who were like out in the sticks in there, trying to uh, what do they put it as? Um, cleanse the natives of their superstitions and also healing all their sicknesses as well. They're yeah. This it, is the big. This is the big white. Big yeah, white, the big white, just, uh, what's it? The big white, um, big white hope type thing coming in. It is. It is. Um, all of the um, the African natives that are portrayed in this, are there, there's three different sort of classes of them. There is the kind of um, almost the sort of like Uncle Tom. I'm going to use a, a cliched old yeah, the lordy lordies, yeah. Yeah, uh, there is uh, you know they've got full command of the English language and they you know they they in, they become friends with whoever you know whichever uh, yeah. either landowner or doctor in this case, the trusted sort of slave and servant. Still, the one that's always carrying all the heavy stuff at the front, but mm. also kind of. Then you have, um, I suppose, though, that they have, you know, like um, sort of a dozen uh, black extras in this that are playing the quasi intelligent sort of locals who are sort of seeing the light to the modern technology and yeah. the medicines and all that. Not that they get any lines in the film or it's ever, you know, 
there's very little in the way of communication with them. They are just there to portray themselves. And then you have the wild natives who are basically running around in grass skirts throwing spears, which is quite bizarre. So Literally spear chuckers. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, quite how Zulus got into the middle of uh, equatorial Africa, I'm not sure. Because uh, around the Gabon and that, they were Bantu, wasn't it? That's the uh, main nation most that probably, but they, I mean, they, they look for all the world, like uh, if you go to the museum and see, you know, uh, pieces on or watch Zulu. Zulu. Or watch Zulu. They look just like Zulus for some strange reason. So whether they're, they've been sort of geographically misplaced, um, I get the feeling it's an American sci-fi writer's misguided interpretation of what the wilds of Africa are like. Yeah. That's another thing it does, which is a pet hate of mine, which is... I mean, Africa's a pretty damn big place. Yeah. Um, but the number of times they talk, oh, this is going to spread all over Africa, not... Uh, yeah, it's taking, disregarding all of the various boundaries that have been mm. drawn or torn up since. Mm. It's and the natural ones, such as the Sahara Desert. Absolutely. <laughs> the River Nile. <laughs> all those kind of things. <coughs> Africa's in for it, everywhere, all at the same time. It's Africa, because it's probably not as big as America. <laughs> there we go. Um, the dozy doctor and Dan is assistant, um, by means of uh, something of a montage that's not very good, uh, land in the sort of civilised part of this country, and they find to get to where this mutant beast is, has been spotted, they have to tre- go on safari, and it's an on-foot trek for 400 miles through uh, baking sunlight. and uh, Stock footage of lions? There is stock footage of, funnily enough, whenever the creature appears, there is stock footage of lions and uh, zebras and elephants and all manner of creatures that obviously live everywhere. <laughs> commonly yeah, I mean, primarily you're talking East African animals that have suddenly decided to go to West Africa just for the hell of it. Most definitely. Yeah, not know. leopards. Um, Mind you, they won't be going back because no sooner did they get there, they get attacked by giant mutant wasps. It's quite... Um, it's bizarre. And it was not ivory poachers, it's giant mutant wasps. Yeah, there you go. Elephants so, never forget that. Despite uh, being, you know, it's strange. The one thing they do take on this 400-mile track so they've got a string of these slightly more intelligent natives carrying mm. all their gear for them and saying absolutely nothing because they had the, I don't know what uh, although they didn't even contemplate I think they they're in awe of the white man and they are so in awe they get no lines in this film whatsoever um, but they get constantly sent to their death by stupidly uh, stupid sort of reconnaissance missions sent to them yeah send, send the darky over there to look at the giant mutant wasp yeah it's straight down it's terrible. Well, they didn't take any red shirts with them, did they? That's they why. Did, no, it's black and white. <laughs> mm, <laughs> they God. haven't quite got to that concept yet. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, essentially, they get to um, the place where this doctor and his daughter... It turns out by this time, this, this other doctor has been eaten by one of the giant mutant wasps. And the, the, How many of them are there, did they say? Well... Now, this is not made absolutely clear. Hmm. They send one of everything up in the rocket, presumably apart from the wasps. Yeah. Although they may have sent one up and it may have bred with a local wasp, thus producing gigantic wasp afterwards. Yeah. I don't know. Um, budgetary requirements suggest that you only ever see one wasp at a time early on. And they save it for the money shot at the end where you see three wasps. <laughs> and he <laughs> nest? Uh, well, it, they, they stupidly nest in a volcano. Um, and... I can't give away any more than that because I'm not going to give away the ending. But uh, let's just say if you're um, if you're an aspiring giant mutant wasp out there, don't make your nest in a live volcano. 
Um, Mother Lark volcanoes in Western Africa? Well, there is for this one. There yeah. certainly is. I mean, there may be in real life, I don't know. There yeah. may well be. Um, but there you go. This area known as Green Hell is a volcanic region that, uh, mm. that the locals... It's truly is a ridiculous film. I think it gets a lot of um, flack for being um, almost like a clone of the film Them, which I think is a very similar, you know, it's science gone wrong, it's created a genetic mutant. It's one of the weaker so bad it's great. I thought I'd go with this one because I did um, The the Incredible Melting Man, which is almost um, like a homage to films of this kind of era. I've got a few other of these that I'm lining up for future podcasts, which I think are going to be a lot better mm. in terms of being... I don't so know, because I, I can't remember seeing it, but it sounds like, you know, giant wasps, um, terrible, dated uh, sort of racial cliches, um, and a kind of paper-thin plot. That's it's all like, of those. Well, mind you, there are quite a few films. From, yeah, but what, I mean, that's what makes a bad film? That's what makes a bad film good. Most definitely, this is one to sit around and watch with your mates um, and be astounded by how politically incorrect it sometimes uh, purports to be. Uh, the the wasps are so unfrighteningly bad, and the fact that there is no build-up given to them. This is probably something they learnt with later films, that you yeah. never reveal the creature so early. You, know, you reveal bits of the creature, or it's in shadow, but the the first time you see this creature, you have this stock footage of all these African animals that shouldn't be in this particular bit of Africa, running away from a very... You know, they sort of try and superimpose the two scenes together, but it, you, it's so obvious that they're dragging a papier-mâché wasp in front of a screen showing footage. It even casts a shadow on the screen. Um, these are not very special, special effects. And I think that's where it, what, what put it into there. If the effects were better, this would probably just be a bad film. Yeah. But uh, as it is, uh, it's, it is, I would say it, It'll be a long time before I watch it again, but I will watch it again. I'm going to watch it tonight. I'll let your next episode, I'll give you a very brief fantastic catch-up. I hope you enjoy it. I did quite enjoy it. It's a very, very silly film. Mm. Um, very much of the time. Uh, you know, giant creature. We're, I think you're going to probably hit the ball out of the park with your next one. Mm, don't know. We um, shall see. <coughs> I might get a few run, runs batted in. No worries. But, but I don't think I'm going to go for a homer on this one. But No worries, but... Uh, uh, just to just to, to round up, that was uh, Monster from Green Hell, 1958. My so bad is great. Okay, um, my my final film for this episode, my so bad it's great, is this little classic. We have got a trailer. Hit the button, boy. like a small rat shrews as small as rats perfect for scientific experiments until they began to grow and grow into things they must eat three times their own weight in food every 24 hours or starve there are two or three hundred giant shrews out there monsters weighing between 50 and 100 pounds that's as big as a full-grown wolf (laughs) Blood-curdling, horrifyingly poisonous monsters. 
into livestock. The shrews got into the barn. The wildest of flesh eaters, threatening all mankind. Your flesh will crawl with fear at their nearness. The shrews were out there. I couldn't take a chance. You're Mm-hmm. The Killer Shrews from 1958. Is it, is, it, uh, is it a 50s thing that their greatest fear was these seemingly innocuous animals well, growing to gigantic proportions and reaping their yeah. revenge? I mean, this one does tie in with uh, a very way back in episode one. I mentioned uh, my so bad it's great selection was the giant Gila monster. Absolutely. And uh, this... Um, it's the same director, Ray Kellogg. He only ever made two feature films, The Giant Gila Monster and this one, both of which are B-movie classics. Um, if you, I'll do a little... I'm, I'm not going to mention that much about Ray Kellogg because I did a fair bit of him on episode one. Uh, but basically, he was an interesting character. Just go listen to what I said about him earlier. So episode one, download it, give it a listen. Basically, the plot is as follows. And I've made quite a few notes. I'm going I'm to zip through it as quick as possible. He says looking at three sides of A4. <laughs> I watched this last night and just started making notes and couldn't stop. It's a Caribbean summer and a small supply uh, cutter is running supplies around some of the more remote islands in the Caribbeans. And he's about to drop uh, supplies off at one nameless island, which is a remote uh, scientific outpost and research station. However, their radio picks up reports of a hurricane closing in fast. And the two-man crew, which is the white square-jawed hero, and his uh, black psychic, um, re- realise they can't outrun the storm. Therefore, they're going to moor the boat in a secluded cove and shelter on this particular island with the scientists. As they pull up, they're expecting just to jump off the boat and hunt the supplies up to the research station, which is about a mile in central this island. But they're actually met by the professor in charge of the island, his lab assistant, and his daughter, who immediately takes one look at the captain and swoons. Very typical, that is. Yeah. <laughs> But bear that in mind, because that's an important subplot that's going to be coming up in a bit. Um, it's obvious that this particular sailor has been to this island before, and uh, maybe that's why the girl swings at him, seemingly the first time she sees him. And uh, he points out that why is the lab assistant there packing a very, very large elephant gun, and he's told it's because of the animals. No eyebrow at this point is raised. Leave the black guy to uh, secure the boat and start unloading. And uh, if need be, he's given orders to go on board the boat and ride the cutter and ride out the hurricane. Because it's in the sheltered bay, but I don't reckon it's going to sink. Just keep it safe and that. Um, uh, while this guy's going to go back and have tea with the uh, professor. Go back to the, uh, the, um, the lab, where they meet his uh, partner in this scientific explanation who spends the entire film spouting strange science stuff like um if the uh, if the hoskiss factor is raised by 10 percent we may get results in the next three weeks on batch 719 and that's all he ever says in the film things like that or uh, random bits of random bits of scientific science. gibberish which i'm going to come to in a little bit um 
conversation breaks out with the doctor and it realize and he says that they're uh, these two scientists with the lab assistant are concerned of overpopulation so they come up with this idea of using genetic manipulation bearing in mind that this is 1958 about a year after watson and crick had just done the genetic code double helix thing um by, by manipulating uh, the genetic codes of everything on earth they can hopefully shrink everyone down a bit <laughs> Therefore, Sorry, hang on. therefore, if everything, if everything life on Earth is half its size, we've got double the land space. Carry on. Is that one gone out of the park yet? <laughs> anyway, um, to this end, they've been looking on an animal to work with that is uh, quick breeding so they can get many generations in. And rather than go with things like fruit flies... They decide to go with shrews. <laughs> because they're quick breeding. Um, and they have a very high respiratory system, which means they only live about six months maximum. But they can breed several times in that six months, and they can get multiple generations to interbreed with them. It's blah, 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 blah. Um, that bit of science is actually quite accurate. You know? However, they then go on to say that each shrew must eat three times its body weight to survive. And why, why do they do that? I don't know. I looked it up on Wikipedia and it's completely out of bullshit. They do need to eat a lot, but not three times their own body weight. They need to oh, eat about okay. a third of their body weight. But... Well, I thought that was part of the scientific experiment that they force feed these shrews. <laughs> well, um, it also lends Sandra out and says that these shrews are voracious feeders. And, uh, and another lovely bit of uh, scientific bullshit is that if they run out of food their own size, they will gang up into huge plagues to bring down large animals. <laughs> shrews. Shrews. Is this a shrews plantation? <laughs> yeah, shrews plantation. It's a very short-lived genre. <coughs> shrews plantation. Uh, uh, meanwhile, outside, the, the storm's getting up, and uh, the captain advises everyone to open a window because. Uh, the wind pressures and this kind of thing could blow in the shutters. Um, there's kind of lots of nervous glances at each other, and nothing is said. <laughs> um, uh, meanwhile, uh, so they uh, they settle down for tea. They kind of uh, and, they, and they start talking about shrews. Then the captain asks the doctor, "How so? How big do these shrews get?" Cue another kind of awkward silence with nervous glances at each other. Now, the whole point of this whole experiment was to make things smaller. Was yes. It? I take it this has not gone according to plan. Well, we'll we're, we're just about to do that. I've got to cut back to the deckhand guarding the boat. He's come ashore to check that the boat's mooring because the trees are doing this and backwards and forwards and that. And he's gone to go and check that the mooring ropes that's tied around some particularly big, thick palm trees are secure and holding the boat in position. Um... He uh, he's checking these ropes when suddenly he turns around and running at him is what can only be described as whippets with fur coats on. <laughs> <coughs> um, there's no other way of putting it. These things are supposed to be giant killer shrews, but they actually look like whippets or large whippets or small greyhounds, complete with waggy tails. <laughs> and um, to escape them, uh, this so this black deckhand runs up, climbs up a tree because we've, we've been told that shrews. Great diggers, but they can't climb. Right. So he goes up a tree, but he's a rather large man, to put it at least, and the branch goes, and he's pop, taking pot shots at the, at the shrews 
with a very cliched West Indian accent. No, you shoes aren't going to get hold me up here, no way, sir. What the hell kind of accent is It's supposed to be a bad Hollywood black accent from the 1950s. Taking pot shots at the yeah. <laughs> well, maybe some Barbados, because the Barbadian accent sounds a bit West Country. But anyway, so he's firing at these shrews with his pistol, and then all of a sudden the branch goes creak, 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 snap. And he plummets down into a pack of whippets with fur coats on, um, where he proceeds to be what can only be described as lictor to death. <laughs> because you know what it's like when you get a load of enthusiastic puppies and they're all bouncing up at you and the tails are going and this, that and the other, and their ears are up. I can that, think of worse ways to <laughs> Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, meanwhile, the cat, uh, cut back to the, to the compound where this scientist is kind of doing the experiments and cellar laboratory with kind of a house and a kind of outhouse barns and that on the little compound around it. The captain turns around and says to his host, well, that's a lovely meal. Um, I'd better get back to the boat because uh, he's gonna, because it's blowing up out there and my mate's going to need uh, a hand on the ropes and um, there's more kind of uh, stunned silences and cautious looks before. And at this point, he, he actually says, why, what's the matter? <laughs> After about four or five heavy pauses, with kind of nervous looks, and he eventually susses on this occasion. And uh, basically, um, this is the point the professor explains, that one of their experiments, as you just said, has gone horribly wrong, and instead of shrinking shrews down, uh, they've actually, um, uh, owing to a kind of error, which apparently was caused by the, uh, we find out a little bit later on, was caused by the drunken lab assistant, who's also the fiancé of the professor's daughter, um... <laughs> Uh, two to three hundred, one hundred pound, five foot long giant killer shrews <laughs> have run out onto the island where they've eaten every living thing in existence and are beginning to starve. And then the uh, doc, the bad doctor then sort of spouts something which the professor translates as, yes, uh, not only are they mutant, but they've also got uh, seem to have inherited the most aggressive genes of their kind. Or the most aggressive, the, uh, the most aggressive traits of their kind, sorry. The captain's left alone with the daughter, who, and the daughter then explains to him that there's two reasons why she made him stay and get locked in with them. One, because she doesn't trust the uh, mad boffin, the do- doddery old father, or the drunken alcoholic, or the Mexican butler. <laughs> Mexican um, so, butler? Yeah, the Mexican right. butler in here. Um, I've got, uh, yeah, he's the other guy there. Um, and also she fancies him, even though she's engaged to the... And he starts to snoggle when lab assistant walks in. Bit of an argument breaks out. Meanwhile... There's uh, all these whippets in fur coats gather around the start to attack the compound, and uh, they get they get into the barn where the livestock's kept, and you hear kind of um, distressed whose horse is whinnying and the screams of dying sheep, etc. Although you never actually see them because they won't let anyone out, or the cam- or they wouldn't even let the cameraman out there <laughs> to film um, to film the giant shrews massacring the animals. Probably because they couldn't fo- they couldn't film it with kind of tame horses and sheep and whippets in fur coats. <laughs> But the, uh, but the mad scientist that's spouting all the scientific gibberish uh, then points out that this isn't um, uh, kind of, uh, this is great. We're in a great situation. We must not try and escape the island because they're talking about how they're going to get off. We must stay here and study the effects of overpopulation on the island. Yeah. What's that effect, you know? And um, he then decides that he's not going to let anyone leave. Oh, so he goes a bit loopy. Yeah. Right. Um. Meanwhile, the uh, the captain, the daughter, 
uh, the lab assistant and the main professor turned around and say, bugger, and the Mexican guy say, bugger that, we're out of here first thing in the morning, because the shrews are mainly active at night, unless they're really hungry, and they've just eaten all the livestock, therefore they should be okay. Um, uh, what was I? Uh, so they'll stay there till morning and get out. We're perfectly safe, we've got a concrete floor, and these are thick walls. And then the captain put, then the, then the Mexican points out, yes, but they are adobe, he's mud and sticks. <laughs> and these things have just been told they're great at digging. Oh dear. Yeah. And also I point out at this point, the compound around the front of the house is kind of well barricaded with like locked gates and that, but with a dirt floor. That the shrews have yet to yet to kind of suss out. Ah. Right. Um The uh Do they post anybody on watch? And come into that. They decide they're gonna they're gonna start, take it in terms of staying watch while they're doing it. Lab assistants gets pissed and uh, basically bullies the Mexican guy into doing his watch as well. The Mexican guy uh, hears, finds a window has been blown open by the hurricane, and uh, and then he's not, he spots, uh, goes to check the cellar and spots he's got a killer shrew down there, so he locks the door. Um, he goes and tries to wake up the lab assistant. Oh, he's pissed now. Oh, so he wakes up, wakes up the captain of the boat, the hero. And they both go down and set it together and snuff the killer shrew, but not before it's taken a lump out of the Mexican's leg. Nah, I'm okay, he's just bit on me leg, sort of thing. And then he just falls flat on his face and switches and dies. <laughs> um, it then, cut, then describes that the professor has tried to cook up and poison these shrews a couple of days previous. And the shrews have absorbed the poison into their system and now secreting it through their teeth. So they're now... Not only giant mutant, psychopathic killer psychopathic, they're also poisonous. They've got a poisonous bite, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Which actually in real life shrews do have poisonous bites, but that's how they can paralyze the little reptiles and lizards they're chasing rather than insects rather than But anyway. Um uh, so, so you, the scientists engineered this poison. Um and you never really go into the reason why he kind of engineered the poison, other than to kill the shrews, but then he's over the moon that these shrews have absorbed it into their system. Never go into that. Um, dawn breaks, and the lab assistant's been drinking all night, thinking that the captain's getting off with his bird, and they decide that they're going to go and head off to, uh, to the boat, the captain and the lab assistant. And that's the point where the drunken lab assistant chooses to have it out with the captain. Here, you've been looking at more bird funny. And they start a bit of a gunfight. Um, whilst being the, whilst the killer shrews are gathering around, or the whippets in fur coats are gathering around <laughs> to run in and start chomping at them. Oh, I'll also point out that when they shoot the, these, they look like whippets, most of the dogs, apart from the one that gets shot in the cellar that bites the Mexican, that's clearly a Dalmatian, you can see the spots. <laughs> <laughs> so they eventually fall back and um, they're trying to work out another way. The shrews by this time have discovered that they can tunnel through the walls. And they're trying to barricade themselves in one room while the shrews are coming through the walls at them. Um, at this point, the mad doctor that's just about the scientific bullshit gets bitten. And he walks over, sits down at a typewriter and uh, starts to type up the, the poison symptoms right up to the very moment of death, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> and you never see the things. So I imagine it's, I'm feeling quite unwell. At this point, it starts getting uh, um, the silly plot starts to getting um, even sillier because 
as they're fighting the killer shrews, uh, they're trying to throw tables up against the walls to barricade it with the effect that you can see the ripples running down the flats, just like an old episode of Blake 7. Um, uh, shrews are trying to chew through walls with bendy rubber teeth that are kind of curving around in circles. Because what they've done, they've got kind of two type, three types of killer shrew. You've got the whippet in the, in the fur coat, which is kind of the one they use for chasing people through the woods with. You've then got one which is used for kind of the whip, uh, someone jumping up, which is slightly bigger dog. This is probably using the Dalmatians, that kind of thing for. It's got this kind of, poor dog's got this kind of mask on. Still got a fur coat, but a mask with like rubber teeth. You can see the dog's nose behind the teeth of the mouth as it jumps up. And then you've got this kind of model head. But kind of, there's, obviously there's someone just at a camera shot poking it through a wall, working the jaws to make little levers to make the jaws open and close. Um, the, uh, and you can see the, te- the teeth bend. There's eyes that kind of supposed to be tracking people that don't move. There's a cut, there's, I think there's one bit where whiskers get ripped off. It's just very, very stupid. And then I'm not going to give the end away, but it's kind of something that the A team would have been proud of. Um, utilising what they can find in the yard as a street <laughs> driving out of the house. Um, but there's one section where they're trying to escape in this contraption that they've built. The shrew manages to rip the boot, a boot off the girl. And she's got zip-up boots, and the shrew manages to undo the zip, because you can clearly see as the boot comes off the shrew's mouth, the bit where the zip's been opened and it's hanging loose. <laughs> yeah. Very, very silly. Um... But interestingly, whereas uh, Kellogg's other film that he talks about in episode one, uh, the John Gear Monsters, yeah. cast of relative unknowns, this one has got quite a high-profile cast. The lead um, bloke uh, plays the captain, played by a guy called James Best, best known as Boss Hulk from the TV Dukes of Hazard. No! Yeah. Ah. Um, the girl is... Uh, uh, the, the main girl is a Swedish actress... Who uh, called Ingrid Gould, who did a lot of B movies and medium to low budget horrors right throughout the sixties and in, right into the early seventies. Um, you got Ken Curtis, uh, <coughs> star of great classic westerns like How the West Was Won, The Rio Grande, and The Alamo. He was uh, one of John Ford's best mates, and also was kind of normally played the foil or one of the foils to John Wayne's characters mm. in all those classic westerns. Um, and then interestingly, the old Doctor himself is played by Bert Lummett, who was a quite a respected 1950s Jewish New York stand-up comic. Um, and uh, he did a few other films, including Woody Allen's All You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, mm-hmm. along with a few other bits and smaller roles in Woody Allen films. And a lot of kind of, I said, he was a highly respected Jewish wisecracking New York stand-up, you know? Um it is just a very silly film, as you've, we've just gone through. Um, highly entertaining. It's just kind of a great take your brain out and roll with it. So <laughs> it's a B movie classic, you know. And I think if I was Ray Kellogg, you'd say sadly Ray Kellogg's died now. But wherever Ray Kellogg's doing, if you're looking down or listening to this podcast in heaven or where or wherever you've gone, if you believe in that kind of thing in the first place. Rest assured, Mr. Kellogg, that you only ever made two films, but they're two of the best B-movies ever. Killer Shrews by the great uh, Ray Kellogg from 1958. 
I think you may have quite soundly beaten me with that choice there. Well, I don't know. You, you, you've, you, you, I haven't watched it yet, but you've lent me the Moth of Green Hill, so I, I, I can't see it competing with uh, Whippets disguised as Killer Shrews. The poor Dalmatian as well. I can't believe that. Well, that bit's funny because he shoots it and the dog lays down. But then you could, then it's quite obvious that when they're going up and inspect the dog, it's laying there, you can see it panting. <laughs> and then it's kind of, then when you watch the sequence on the slow mo on the DVD, it's quite obvious that that bit's been reversed. So the dog jumps up because the gunshot's slightly before the... So they've obviously got the dog, stay, stay, stay. Bang! And the dog's up. And, yeah. And running across the room, yeah? It's superb. Yeah. Okay. Well, that concludes uh, So Bad It's Great and... It concludes uh, what may, just very, very slightly may, be our last ever episode. Absolutely. But we will be back after the, uh, if we're not blown up beforehand. No worries. We will uh, we will endeavour to uh, survive the end of the world potentially and come back with uh, uh, another podcast in the new year. And we've actually got a theme for that one already. We have already. We're not going to give that away. Just to let you know, there will be um, a kind of a mini bonus episode which is yes. growing all the time. The gag reel we mentioned it last time. It's the bits that go horribly wrong um, with comedic purposes, of which there are quite a few. Yeah. And there's probably going to be a lot of coughing in it as well. Yeah. <laughs> um. <coughs> Very apt. That's a, that's a try. That's, a way that's of a demonstration. A I think that one will stay in this episode just yeah. to demonstrate. That's the kind of crap that I have to edit out constantly. <coughs> there we go. I have to edit that kind of crap out as well. Um, so all that remains is to, to give you the uh, the all important uh, web addresses and everything. I have an apology to make. I after rather embarrassingly put myself on the spot. It had been a while since we'd done podcast i completely forgotten the email address he was um, a very naughty boy it was a, a very because i set up the address configured it and picked it and then promptly forgot it for that episode but i'll go through all the correct uh, addresses again this time so uh the best place to find out about this podcast if you haven't already found it yourself which you probably should have done if you're listening to it it is www.crashandburnmoviepodcast.co.uk the email address, and this is correct, don't use the one I said last time, that was bollocks. It is feedback at crashandburnmoviepodcast.co.uk. From the website, you can also find a link to our Twitter feed, you can follow us on Twitter, um, you can like us on Facebook, you cannot dislike us on Facebook, as we've already previously yes. said. But you can ignore us, but there you go. You can ignore us, but place. don't ignore us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook and follow us. We are likeable people. Absolutely. Please send in some feedback if you've enjoyed or hated the show, or if you have any suggestions for future theme selections, or so bad it's great. Yeah. We, we're always looking for inspiration. I've got to also point this out. If we can start getting... Between 50 and 100 regular listeners. We've had one of our regular listeners also already suggested we might start running some silly competitions. They're going to be very silly. Um, it's going to be much for more for kudos, I think, than any great prizes. Yeah. Um, oh, it will be. It will be kudos, yeah. But that's something for the new year, providing we survive the end of the world. You're going to talk about your radio show? Yep, every Sunday. Um, although not the two weeks over Christmas and New Year. Uh, but every Sunday, BCFM Sunday Rock Show, uh, 93.2 FM in the Bristol, UK area, or it's a, uh, on uh, www.bcfm.org.uk, anywhere in the world, and it's also duplicate streamed on some of these radio station-finding websites. Um, every Sunday, the best rock, metal, punk, prog the world 
can give you. And uh, by the time this episode goes out, the current one will feature a little lovely Charlie Bicknell, who is a very talented Welsh singer-songwriter. Awesome. So that was episode eight, and potentially, if the world ends, the last ever Crash, Crash and Burn, Burn movie, movie podcast. podcast. We hope it's one. But just to um, as a bit of a nod to uh, Doctor Strange, love and the the iconic ending. We're going to play out with a different bit of music. So it's good night from me. Good night from him. And it's good night from us, and potentially civilization as we know it. Good night. And humanity, it's been a gas. So. I have a plan. Monsieur has a lot. We'll meet again. You saw me gone.